Hello out there to all my loyal listeners, and thank you for tuning in to yet another another episode of the Mark Geis Show. This is Mark Geis, your host, and I've got some some more interesting things to discuss today. And there is a law of nature, I think, where if you are a libertarian-leaning podcast, you have to talk about Gary Johnson's Aleppo gaffe. So I will get to that, and I will discuss that at length. Um, I know that if I didn't do that, I think the libertarian gods would smite me and my podcast would be no longer. So don't worry, I will discuss that probably for a majority of this podcast. But I do have another topic that I want to discuss first. And this has been something that I've been meaning to, to talk about. I've kind of had it in, in the queue. And then I read an article on, I believe it was on Wednesday, I read it, Uh basically about a cashless society or a society that that uses less cash it was a, it was an opinion piece advocating for a uh, for an abolition of the 2050 and 100 dollar bills uh, so I'm going to discuss that first and then get into the the Gary Johnson Aleppo business so this opinion piece I read it on market watch I'm not sure where it was originally posted where it was originally written but it's by kenneth rogoff and like i said before he's advocating for abolishing the 20 dollars, 50 dollars, and 100 dollars bills in the united states because he believes that cash is used disproportionately to commit crimes that the average person now depends far more on on debit cards and credit cards rather than actually exchanging cash so by getting rid of larger bills we will reduce crime uh and getting into this article i'm going to post it in the suggested readings and referenced articles uh part of my description so you can find this article i'm i'm trying to start to do that rather than just referencing these articles and forcing listeners to go out and find them in the ether i think hopefully that adds some value also i i post some books or related articles maybe that i don't mention but that i i like a lot and that i think help add more uh more breadth to whatever i was discussing in the particular episode so i've started to try to take a little time to do that and make sure i have those links um on the the show page so you can see from the beginning of this article really the the third paragraph he mentions that a less cash society would be a fairer and safer place. And so he has this opinion that somehow by getting rid of cash, you're going to reduce crime. And then as a result, there's going to be a fairer and safer world. And it shows he's coming at this from an ideological bent. Further, he says later on, he says later on in the article, you can just hear the, hear the elitism dripping off his voice as he's as he's writing this reasonable size anonymous purchases should still be allowed uh with these small amounts of cash and that's why we're keeping the ten dollar bill and smaller so the fact that he thinks that governments economists whoever should be able to determine or should have the power to determine okay any bill smaller than this we don't think people should have the ability to be able to just make a cash transaction we should force them to now have to either do this electronically or pay using some other method, you know, by using some other form of, of pseudo currency or by bartering goods, or we're going to force them to use a debit or a credit card. 
or Bitcoin, which I'm going to talk about more later. But this whole thing, it they're coming at it from the angle that it's going to reduce crime. And we need this to to stop criminals and to stop tax evasion and to stop uh, to stop terrorism. But think about how many horrendous policies have been enacted, even in in our in our lifetimes, out of that guise. So by saying this law is going to protect you from criminals and terrorists, that's how we got the Patriot Act. That's how the NSA came to be so large. With, with such a large budget and began spying on average Americans that weren't that you know weren't suspected of crimes that's how we've gotten these horrible laws in this post 9/11 world and it, it, it it's happened before that but I think it's gotten far more egregious in the last 15 years and we're coming right up on the the 15 year anniversary of the 9/11 attacks but this is always the guys used to take away people's liberties. And I think using cash and being able to do things in a more anonymous fashion is a form of liberty. Anyone that's advocating for a cashless society or for a society to move closer to being cashless, it's all to remove your liberties. It's also that the government can track your purchases, can know what you're spending your money on, can tax you easier. That's the reason. It's... They're using this whole criminality excuse as a way to get to their desired ends. That's not the ultimate reason why these things are being pushed. They're being pushed so that central bank manipulation has more of its desired effect, you know, their desired effect. Because the, the more freedom people have to hold their assets in cash, the less... You, you know, the harder it is to, to break that zero bound and do what they probably want to do in the United States, but I don't know if you could get away with it politically. It's break that zero bound like has happened in Japan and like has happened in Europe. That's what they want. And that's what the economists that advocate for a cashless society or near cashless society, that is what they advocate. And if you read this piece, you'll see the elitism dripping off the pages, like I said, and saying, we, we are the ones that can judge what is a reasonable sized purchase. We are the ones that determine reasonableness. Not the citizens who get to decide, okay, this is the amount of cash I need to be able to conduct my business and pay for the things I want to pay in cash this way. And maybe I keep some of my funds in a bank account and use a debit card or maybe I use a credit card for for other transactions that should be up to the citizen I think that's a freedom that we're taking for granted right now but it's slowly being eroded away and if a lot of these mainstream economists had their way they would move us as close to a cashless society as is possible politically so I think we need to read these types of articles and confront this type of thinking head on. And I also want to explore this idea that if we, you know, if we abolish cash or if we abolish any any denominations over $10 that criminals are going to be now less likely to commit crimes because oh Darn, we can't pay in $100 bills, so I guess we're not going to commit crimes anymore. 
No, I mean, look, if you look at what's happening on the internet and the huge developments that are being made in cryptocurrencies, that is what criminals are going to adopt. In many cases, that is what they have already adopted. And cryptocurrencies have a ton of fantastic uses. I don't want to see any restrictions placed on cryptocurrencies. Not that you really could restrict cryptocurrencies at this point. But I love that development and that there will be competition for, you know, government-created currencies. I love cryptocurrencies. But you're already seeing criminals and criminal operations using things like Bitcoin to get their business done because it is anonymous. You know, you don't have to transport physical cash. Of course, you don't have to go through bank accounts or anything like that. So Bitcoin lends itself very well to criminal operations. And, and many criminal operations have already transitioned to using this new technology as a, as a more efficient way to carry out their crimes. But if you abolish $100 bills, you're just going to push more criminals to using cryptocurrencies. This idea that we have all this control over crime and that, you know, all we need to do is make this tweak to cash in the society and we're really going to be able to make a big dent into crime. It's just fantasy. And it's the belief that governments have all this power to stop what people ultimately want to do. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't horrible crimes committed. And I, I would like to see crime reduced, of course. But many crimes are just people trying to get goods that they want to buy from somebody that somebody wants to sell to them or you know prostitution is another example there's a service that i want and somebody else is willing to provide it to me but for whatever reason it is outlawed by the government and cash is a way to facilitate many of those transactions but if you take cash away those transactions are not going anywhere and the larger the operation the more seamlessly they're going to be able to convert over into using Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or other alternatives. And he does reference in this article, to give him credit, to give Rogoff credit, he does mention that, yeah, this isn't going to kill crime, but it's going to force people to use less liquid types of, uh, you know, types of assets to facilitate transactions. So he does make that reference, but it's kind of a, it's kind of at the very end, you know, the whole article is framed in, yes, we can reduce criminality, by taking away dollar bills larger than $10. And that's what the entire article is about. And at the end, he just has this, this kind of throw in line there. I think if you just read a majority of the article, and a lot of people don't read articles from first to last, you get the impression from him that he thinks that this can have a major impact on crime, which I just do not think it will. Criminals are smart, just like everybody else. They're smart and resourceful, and they will figure out a way to facilitate transactions. And I think taking away freedoms from the average person that isn't involved in criminal operations, it's not worth doing that in order to reach whatever goal he wants to reach. And I think it sets a bad precedent where we can further restrict people's ability to use what they want to use to pay for goods and services. So I wanted to discuss that first. Like I said, I've had that in the queue for a while and uh, just reading that article made me say, okay, I think now's the time where I'm going to address it for 10 minutes or so on the show. 
But as promised, to fulfill the natural law of libertarian podcasts, I will discuss the Gary Johnson Aleppo incident, which is getting him the most press I've seen that he's gotten in his campaign. It's obviously negative press. Uh, Basically, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure everybody has seen it by now or at least heard about it. But he was on MSNBC, and he was asked, what would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? Then Johnson said back, and what is Aleppo? And then the MSNBC host said, you're kidding. And then Johnson, you know, kind of stumbled, and then he gave a a sort of ramp. His typical rambling somewhat coherent but mostly incoherent response about how we shouldn't be in the middle east and russia needs to be part of the solution we need to work with russia which i i agree with that and i get what he was trying to say i agree with that position but the way that he says it it's always this roundabout kind of stumbling over himself uh throwing words in wrong places and sentences not he doesn't come across eloquent whatsoever so that was the incident, and then afterwards he he released a, a statement and you know basically said that uh, he he was stumbled by he, he he thought it was an acronym like uh, that Aleppo wasn't was an acronym and that he as pre, as president he knows he's not going to know everything. So he needs to surround himself with good people. That's what he did as governor. That was kind of his statement. I'm not going to read it word for word. That's easy to to go out and find. And ultimately, it's not that important. And then he also said in a couple interviews, because now he's being asked by everybody about this, but he said in in an interview with Wolf Blitzer, quote, I take complete responsibility. I'm running for president of the United States. Look, I should have known what I was talking about or what he was talking about. He also said in another in another interview, quote, I feel horrible, which is the complete wrong response to have in this situation. So should he have known what Aleppo is? Probably, yes. I think it doesn't look good that he didn't know what it was, but he very well could have known what it was. The way that the question was asked was very odd, and it does seem like a gotcha trip up kind of question where it wasn't in the context of the conversation. And I don't know why you would phrase it that way, you know, rather than phrasing it as the, the Syrian civil war, or the Syrian refugee crisis. I mean, that would have been a, a, a much better way to phrase the question. Uh, so I get why he was confused, even if he did know what Aleppo is. And I, and I hope that he did because he should know what it is. It's been in the news quite a bit. But being asked that way, I easily could see why you would think that was an acronym. Or you would think that maybe it was like a lepo, you know, that lepo is something. I I could definitely see how how your brain would process that question. You would think that way. But his response to it was horrendous. So basically he says yeah, I need to get smarter. That was another quote he had in another interview. I need to get smarter. Um, I take complete responsibility. I feel horrible. You know, rather than saying I was tripped up, 
But then it gives him all these chances to say what his position is on Syria and the United States' involvement in the Middle East. This gave him a ton more time, and he could have made his position clear. And I think he could have come out of this at least treading water, if not ahead. But instead, he basically says, oh yeah, I'm an idiot, I need to get smarter about this stuff. And then he stumbles around, and he doesn't get his position out there. Which I think his position, ultimately, when you kind of navigate through all of his struggles to get out a, a perfectly coherent point, his position is correct. So we've done far more harm than good in the Middle East. We ultimately should not be involved in Syria. And with all the problems that the United States faces, why do we care that a presidential candidate knows anything about Aleppo or knows anything about Syria? So let's say even if he had never heard of Aleppo in his life or he didn't know what it was, which is very possible given his response, should that really matter? I, I don't think it should. I think, if anything, I'd much rather, if I had to pick one or the other, I'd much rather my president know nothing about Aleppo and know nothing about Syria because we're not involved there rather than have a president that can talk about exactly what's happening and, oh, this is what I'm going to do to solve this. Because every time we have gone over to the Middle East and tried to solve an issue, we have we've done far more harm than good. We've created instability. We've created these vacuums of power where terrorist groups have risen up or worse dictators have risen up military regimes have risen up or and or civil wars have broken out that is our legacy in the middle east every time we go that's what happens so we should not be talking about aleppo i don't want gary johnson talking about aleppo and if asked about it i want him to give a response like that I want him to say, we should not be there. We have a lot of things to worry about domestically. Nobody proclaimed that the United States is the policeman of the world. That's not even our, our region of the world. And that should be something for the Syrian people and the countries surrounding Syria that are actually directly impacted by what happens there. It should be up to them to figure out a solution to this problem. They are the ones that are there in the middle. They're the ones that are directly impacted. They're the, one, they're the ones whose citizens could be impacted. And they're the ones that need to figure out a solution to this problem. And the U.S., by you know wielding its big stick and basically saying, wherever there's a crisis in the world, we're going to be there because we're the United States. We need to be involved. It is a terrible mindset to have. And that's definitely the mindset that Hillary Clinton has. That's definitely a mindset that a lot of the mainstream media has. And Donald Trump, he does say some good things on foreign policy. I think he's been good when referencing Russia and saying that we should try to be friends with Russia. We should try to allow Russia to address some of the issues in that region because ultimately it's not the United States business. What happens in Syria does not directly impact the United States. We should not have military people over in Syria. We should not be bombing Syria. We should not be entangling ourselves in those affairs. We just shouldn't. And that is traditional American foreign policy, going back to the founding fathers. 
you know, the Middle East now is really the new Europe. At that time, Europe was the site where all the major wars were fought. That was where all the instability was. And, you know, that's where you had, you had France and England. It was kind of the, the end of Spain. It was the decline of Spain. But England and France were the two big dogs on the world stage at that point. And they were virtually always fighting or on the verge of fighting. And traditional American foreign policy was, we are not going to get involved in those issues. You know, all that we're going to do is create, create more problems for ourselves. All that we're going to do is make enemies. Instead, we're going to stay here. You know, we're removed from that part of the world. We can trade with them. We can try to be friends with everybody until they give us a reason not to be. And we're going to be strong and defend ourselves if we need to be. If somebody attacks us, we're going to have the ability to defend ourselves. But traditional American foreign policy said we are not going over to Europe to fight in those wars or to take sides in those conflicts because ultimately it really doesn't affect our people. And I think they also understood the relationship between having your military around the world and an expansive government that takes away liberties at home. And I've discussed that connection on this podcast and how I think not, very few people understand that. But military is an arm of the government. And if you, allow, if you allow the military to get too large and to be all over the world, you then allow the government to use the military as a way to drum up support among the people and allow the people then, or maybe not allow is the right word, but the people then are more willing to give up their civil liberties in order, to, in order for defense to be more effective or for the military's job to be easier. And that's what you've seen in the 20th century. I think that ultimately is the story of 20th century America when we look back on it. And 20, you know, early 21st century America is the military gradually expanding its presence all over the world. And at the same time, the government getting more and more ambitious and taking away more civil liberties. You know, the 20th century is when the income tax came about. You know, when we had all these huge expansive entitlement programs that are in the process of bankrupting this country. That's what's happened throughout the 20th century, and they've happened hand in hand. So I wish that is what more people understood. And I think Gary Johnson has a great platform now after making this gaffe you know it was unintentional but he he has all these interviews now and everybody wants to hear what gary johnson has to say it would have been the perfect time for him to come out and have a coherent response where he can make these points and he can get this message out there because i think people when they hear it when they hear it said coherently and logically people respond to this message because i think at heart they they know that something is wrong when the U.S. spends more on its military than, I believe it's the next 12 largest militaries in the world. At heart, I think they know there's something wrong with that. When, Especially if you grew up in a working class or, or middle class area, you know a fr a f at least one friend that's overseas. Or, you know, one of, one of your closest friends is in the military. Or you have family in the military. I know I, I definitely fit into that, uh, you know, to that category. People know there's something wrong with that. 
I think they just need to be told what is wrong with it. And if you give a coherent answer, which Gary Johnson has had the opportunity to do, he hasn't taken it, then you can get that message out there. And I think that's what Ron Paul did effectively. And he didn't go out there. He he didn't have this scripted response where, uh, if you know, if I'm asked this question, this is what I'm going to say. But Ron Paul knew his stuff. He understood his position in and out. And he was able to say it in kind of an everyman way that people really responded to. And that's why young people came out in droves to support Ron Paul. Ron Paul converted a lot of people to the libertarian movement. And I think he converted a lot of people from the left who consider themselves a liberal or a Democrat because they, you know, they kind of bought into the idea that Democrats are the, uh, the peace party and Republicans are the war party, even though that's really not the case. But I know I kind of fell into that into that category. You know, I, I originally registered as a Democrat to vote. I leaned Democrat because I thought, you know, I saw what George Bush had done, getting us involved in all these foreign conflicts, and I thought, I can't support that party. And when I was coming out to vote, it was, it was uh, right after the Obama election. He had said a lot of good things about, you know, getting us out of these foreign conflicts. And that was the big thing that, that brought me over to the left. But then you start listening to Ron Paul and he actually gives a consistent defense of non-interventionist foreign policy. And he has been consistent his entire career. And then he makes the connections as to how that, that is incompatible with, uh, economic interventions at home and how if if you want us to have uh if you want us to have a smaller military or you know a less interventionist military that goes hand in hand with economic liberty at home and the arguments in favor of both are the, are the same and you draw them from the same principles that's what drew me over to ron paul and i mean that ultimately was what brought me to libertarianism and considering myself a libertarian because he actually gave a principled stand in favor of non-interventionism and then related it to his entire philosophy about how things should happen domestically, about what the best form of, of government is domestically. And that's what he did so well. But Gary Johnson does not do that. And he is really flubbing a tremendous opportunity that the Libertarian Party had to get its message out there. Was the Libertarian ever going to win the, the 2016 presidential election? No. But you have a chance here where these two candidates are so disliked by a pretty substantial portion of the population. And there is a lot of room there for a principled alternative. And I think this is a, 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 as good of an opportunity as you're going to get to convert people to libertarianism. And if you had somebody with Ron Paul's principles that was able to speak to them, I think you would see a lot more people flocking to libertarianism right now and a lot more debate about libertarian ideas. But if anything, Gary Johnson, I, I, I did a whole episode about this. I don't remember what episode number it was, uh, but his name was in the title of it. And he is time and time again just completely rejected core libertarian ideals which has turned off a lot of the base and i think a, a lot of libertarians are not voting for him 
are, are either not going to vote for anybody or going to or are going to write somebody in. I mean, I think maybe even some people have gone over to Trump and thought, well, you know, if I'm going to vote for somebody that's not a principled libertarian, maybe I'll vote for somebody that has a chance to win. And yeah, maybe he's drawn some people. I think he's drawn more from the left than from the right. I think that seems to be who he's pandering to is, you know, disillusioned Bernie supporters and people on the left that don't want to support Hillary Clinton, that don't like what she stands for. So I think that's where he's drawn more from. But he has just completely screwed up this opportunity that that he had, that he was given by the Libertarian Party. And it's been very depressing to watch. But in this case, I I want to defend at least the initial incident. And I can certainly see how he was confused at that time, why he wouldn't have had an immediate response. It was a weird way to phrase that question. So I want to defend him there. It's not all negative about Gary Johnson. But his response after the fact was horrendous. And he flubbed another opportunity. Because really, when you're a third party bad publicity can still be good publicity. Just having publicity is a big deal. But it's how you deal with that bad publicity that determines ultimately how it's going to affect your campaign. You know, I think Jill Stein getting, having warrants out for her arrest up in North Dakota, that could help help her draw people, depending on how she reacts to it, depending on how she handles it, depending on how she now treats these new interview opportunities that she's going to have but everybody's going to want to talk to her now and she's going to have a platform where she's going to at least have some time to get her ideals out there and she very well may be able to turn that into a positive just like gary johnson could have turned this into a positive but it's just yet again showing how poor of a candidate he is and it's it's depressing. I, it really is because this was such a great opportunity. But if he wants to make anything of this, and there still is a couple months left, a couple, couple months left to try to get a message out there, it would be don't stray away from your base. You were given an opportunity by the Libertarian Party. They nominated you. And turning off your base is not a way to, to garner support. And that's, I think, what he's doing is he's looking at at the, at the end of the day, how many votes can I get? And that's all that really matters. Which, maybe there's some sort of utility in looking at it that way. But I, I really don't think there is. And I, I think if he'd made a principled stand, I think it's impossible to know, to look back and say, which, which way would have been better. But I think he would have been better if he had stuck to principles. Though I, I, he, he never really was a libertarian to start with. And he never really was consistent. But he's gotten worse but if he had stuck to some principles, I think he would have drawn people, just like you, you would have said back in 2008 and 2012, how could Ron Paul possibly pull from the left? You know, look at his economic ideas and look at the economic ideas on the, on the left. They're completely incompatible. But he drew former Democrats and former progressives in droves to work for his campaign and to support him. And many of them permanently converted to being what they would call, uh, they would deem themselves libertarians. You never could have thought that would happen before those elections. But it's because he came out and gave a principled stand. And I think people ultimately respect that. And I've said this about Bernie Sanders, but I think a lot of people supported him 
simply because he was consistent. And yes, I personally disagree with him on the vast majority of issues. However, I, I respected him more than any of the other major candidates because he at least was consistent. He at least had principles, though I think the principles are dangerous, but he had principles and he, and he stood by them until he endorsed Hillary Clinton, of course. And I had another episode about that as well. But I, I could respect that. And I think if maybe I was more on the fence about a lot of things and didn't really know what to think, maybe I would gravitate toward somebody like that just because he's consistent. It's like, okay, I can understand where he's coming from. I can predict what his position is going to be based on what his principles are. I think that's what that's what happened with a lot of people with the Ron Paul movement. And I think Gary Johnson would have had that opportunity too, to pull people that you never otherwise would have thought libertarians had a chance to pull if he had just stayed principled and known his stuff and given solid answers and where people could understand his thought process. But you can't you can't understand his thought process. Listening to an interview, it's painful. I've, I've had to avoid it as much as possible now. I've avoided those town halls. I watched one of them, and he was, he was pretty bad. He was very bad. And after, after that, it's, I, I'm not going to seek out Gary Johnson interviews because I'm not going to learn anything more about what he actually stands for. He's trying to say something that's not going to offend people, that he, he toes this line between you know, wanting to appeal enough to the mainstream but then – sort of say some some libertarian positions on things that's what he does in interviews and as a result because he's trying to please all these different factions it's an incoherent jumbled mess a lot of the time but i hope this last couple months he still has time to react to this he still has time to hopefully recover and maybe he can say some good things over this next couple months i'll tell you i'm definitely not not optimistic about that and i don't think many people are optimistic about that Uh, but he still does have an opportunity and i'll be the first one if he comes out and he he changes his tune i will be the first one to admit good for him and and maybe this is somebody i can vote for but as of now i don't think i can and i think i've got to sit this one out or, or write somebody in at the least or just not vote for anybody for president and focus on my state and local races. So that's my position on this whole Gary Johnson issue. And I actually saw, I a lot of these are just stream of consciousness where I just have a topic and I just kind of start rambling about it and see where it goes. This one I did write some notes earlier in the day just because uh, I was at lunch and was just kind of sitting there and it came to me that this is what I should be talking about and uh what do I really think about this? I actually came back today after work and was was online and saw somebody that basically said what I had jotted down as my as my position. So I wanted to make sure I got that article in here because I I happened to to see it. But it the article is entitled "Should Gary Johnson Have Known About Aleppo?" and it's at the Foundation for Economic Education, which is a fantastic website, by the way. If if you don't follow them or or uh, check out their articles on a regular basis. I think you're really missing out. I think they do a very good job, and it's always about a, a wide array of issues. And some of it's current events, um, some of it's more 
you know, what what are libertarian positions and exploring kind of the the gray areas. It's a very good website, though. So I'll have that article linked because they make a lot of the same points or the writer makes a lot of the same points that I had made in this podcast that I had already jotted down. So we were definitely thinking along the same lines. Basically, his position is that it's it's not a big deal that Gary Johnson doesn't know about Aleppo. Basically, like I had said previously. So I think that's all I've got for today. I thank you for joining me. I am available, like I said. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter if you have any any topics you'd like to talk you'd like me to talk about or any position you want to challenge me on. I welcome that. I always look forward to talking to people that are thinking about this kind of stuff. My Twitter is at Mark Geis. And uh, I look forward to hearing from people and really look forward to continuing to do this. I really appreciate all your support and all your listens. So thank you.